0: Welcome back to the Anja Health Better Birth Podcast. We are super excited today to have Dr. Steve Radd with us, a maternal fetal medicine specialist um, and also general high-risk pregnancy specialist. So thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you very much for having me. It's a <laughs> pleasure and honor to be uh, in your podcast, which I've heard a lot about.
0: Oh, yeah. That's so awesome. I Yeah, I'm grateful that you're here, especially since I know you rushed from surgery this morning.
1: <laughs> yeah, I've been up... Um, Actually since yesterday we oh had Oh my gosh. Yeah, we had we had an emergency surgery last night. So oh, wow. then I just ended up and then the surgery this morning and surgery this mm. afternoon.
0: Okay, wow. So awesome. I just
1: ended up not sleeping. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, cool. Well, yeah, I'm super grateful that you're here. You look fresh.
1: <laughs> yeah, I took a shower. In between.
0: <laughs> okay, cool. Um, well, yeah, as as our listeners know, Anja House does cord blood banking and also placenta stem cell banking. Um, so I typically like to start off by just getting your general take and experience with cord blood banking. Um, so, yeah, have you collected cord blood before? And typically, how does it work when you collect it?
1: yeah absolutely so um as you said i'm a high-risk pregnancy specialist um and so i do also i do consultations for high-risk pregnancies and Mm -hmm. help other obstetricians but i also practice obstetrics so i still do a lot of deliveries cool and so um absolutely in a lot of my deliveries we do um do collect cord blood and we have been for many years
0: awesome Cool. Do you have any tips or tricks that you do when you collect cord blood?
1: No, I mean, you know, now we do delayed cord. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, delay cutting the cord. Yeah. So, we just have to be kind of quick. Mm-hmm. Uh, if if the patient is requesting the the cord blood collection, right? You don't have an infinite amount of time, so we have to do our delayed cord clamping. That takes priority and then
0: how long do you typically do it for
1: about 60 seconds okay cool and then um and then uh we already have it ready to go basically the the cord blood collection kit so we can do it right away okay before awesome. it's too late so there isn't uh, an there's not an infinite amount of time you have to be quick and ready yeah prepared. definitely
0: yeah, especially since you're a high risk specialist, I'd be interested in getting your thoughts on cord blood usage immediately after birth. In the case that there are complications, um, like for instance, we were chatting earlier about our partnership with Billion to One at Anja House, um, and they are able to cover the first year of cord blood banking if the baby or mother has some sort of complication that they're testing for um so yeah what are your thoughts on general cord blood usage if you're pregnant
1: yeah i mean that partnership you have in the, with billion to one is very unique and and very amazing so um it's uh i, I mean I, i'm very impressed that they've agreed <laughs> to do that yeah their testing is very um uh not new but they they're very different than some of the other companies and so the testing they provide is different um and so they're able to do that i'm not sure that any other other of the companies would even um have that application um you know so we advise our patients we always give them the option and talk Mm -hmm. about cord blood banking with them um and we don't necessarily have a stance on it, but we make sure that they're informed and that, that yeah. they make a personal decision. The patients have several options for cord blood banking. They can either they can not bank anything and just discard it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, as you know, you can do a private um, banking. You can do public banking, and there's some also companies where there's like a combination or direct donor um, options. So um, we present the patients with the different options. Um we encourage them if they're g- going to go with a private company to do the research on the company you know um and their contracts mm-hmm. um are very particular, and their fee structure and what the process is if they ever need to use the blood, they should be well informed ahead of time like what the policies and procedures and fees for obtaining the core the the core blood or um, how long the company's been in business? Have they ever? Has that company ever had their cord blood used, and mm-hmm. um, for a patient, or they just um, have only banked so far? So we really encourage them to get all the information they can to make sure they know kind of what they're getting into. Right. Um, second about hopefully not. No one needs to use the cord blood bank. It's sort of like an insurance, you know, biologic insurance. Mm-hmm. And the likelihood of needing to use it is is low, fortunately, um, and you know it's been. There are cases where, particularly, like private companies have used cord blood banking for different kind of like blood disorders, like mm-hmm. you mentioned, that sickle cell disease or thalassemias, right? Different kinds of cancers, <clears throat> um, and so. And some like some immune diseases. So um, there are some actual applications. There's not a lot of necessarily literature out there on it because it's still kind of new and and relatively new. And they're still um, and its use is not that common, fortunately. So I haven't had any of my personal patients had to actually use their cord blood yet. Um, but of course, as we mentioned, we've had a lot of pa- uh, our patients collect the cord blood. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of research being done on it, and um, we anticipate that it may have a lot of uses in the future. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, if we're pressed, we're co- you know we explain to the patients kind of an insurance, well, saying it may have even more applications in the future. Right. Um, and a lot of parents want to do everything that they can for their um for their children and so if they really want to do everything then technically this is something they should they should consider.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Um cool. Well, my last question around cord blood banking is we get a lot of sort of conspiracy theory type comments on our social media around what happens if they don't pri- privately or publicly bank the umbilical cord and placenta. So, I get a lot of questions around um like thoughts around when the umbilical cord and placenta are thrown away? Like some people theorize that it's actually sold by doctors or anything like that. So what are your thoughts? Do doctors sell umbilical cords and placenta? No,
1: I, I I, don't sell any. <laughs> um, and none of my colleagues that I know sell Yes. Um, it literally goes in a bucket and it goes on a at least in the hospitals that I work at, it goes um, in a special, um, you know, secured location and it gets discarded. Right.
2: So is it um, incinerated?
1: They, I don't know how what the um, lab does with it in terms of how they discard it. Um, I'm. A, I mean, that sounds plausible, but um, unless we request the placenta to be evaluated by the pathologist. Right. Um, otherwise, it just gets discarded right. there's, i don't there's no conspiracies <laughs> that I know of
0: yeah, um, okay, awesome, well, I'd love to delve deeper into just high risk pregnancy um Things around stillbirth and kind of ha- what your specialty revolves around. Um, so, first of all, one of the really highly asked questions on Google, for instance, when you Google high-risk pregnancy is, how is high-risk pregnancy diagnosed and how is it further monitored throughout the pregnancy?
1: Um, absolutely. So, hi- the term high-risk pregnancy is very vague. Um, and any kind of pregnancy that's just not routine. hmm is technically considered can be considered high risk. Mm. So anything that's not a normal healthy pregnancy, and um, that can involve the mother or the fetus, um, and so high risk pregnancy is a very, very generic, very vague, very widely used term. Right. Um. Like, we can, we'll, I'm sure we'll get into a little more details about what kind of conditions we treat and things like that.
0: What's the most common type of high-risk pregnancy that you generally take a look at?
1: Oh, okay, yeah. I mean, like, most common, but not um, necessarily most um, interesting because it's so common, (laughs) would be, like, gestational diabetes Mm -hmm. or um, high blood pressure pregnancy or preeclampsia. Right. Um. Those are pro- like early risk for like early delivery, miscarriages, mm-hmm. recurrent miscarriages. Those are probably the most common.
0: Right. And I know those that are pregnant above the age of 35 and twin pregnancies are also deemed high risk, right?
1: Sure. Automatically. Like okay. if you're um, over 35, yes, all multiple gestations mm. are considered high risk, Um You know, this issue of the age, though, that's like, at least in L.A., it's very common to be over 35, Um, you know, over 40 or 45. My oldest patient, I was 52.
0: Wow, and pregnant. Yeah,
1: and so 35 is like normal for us.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because I saw um, Dr. Sterling, this OBGYN influencer, Or she posted uh, a quick, like, TikTok talking about how there are actually some benefits to being pregnant above the age of 35. Like, it's been correlated with longer lifespan for the mom.
1: (laughs) Possibly, yeah, sure. Yeah. (laughs) And, I mean, it's just like, you know, women are a lot—it's different these days. Right. And and they're working, and they're—I think women are taking over men (laughs) in a lot of (laughs) fields, actually. Um, Yeah. And so— they they're just not having children as early as they used to, and right. so um, it's very common, especially in LA. I think if you go to other cities, sometimes it's not typical for them mm-hmm. um, across the United States, and so they're automatically considered right. um, uh, high risk. And technically, based on the literature, those pregnancies are at higher risk for complications. Right. Um, even though we've kind of gotten used to it here in Los Angeles. Right. Um, you know, if we see patients in their 20s, it's almost weird for us. <laughs> yeah. You know, if someone's if someone's not over 35, it's weird for us.
0: Yeah. Okay. So if you're pregnant, you're below the age of 35, you're not having twins or triplets or anything like that, it's just a single baby, then what would be your number one tip to prevent high-risk pregnancy?
1: Okay, so you bring up something, something important. All pregnancies are at risk for becoming high risk. High risk, mm-hmm. And it's something that a lot of people don't think about or don't right. consider. So we consider all pregnancies at risk. Um, first of all, we recommend pre-pregnancy counseling for everyone. Everyone, I think, mm-hmm. should uh, meet with their OBGYN before becoming pregnant making sure, you know, they don't have any medical conditions, mm-hmm. making sure they are um, they can get their blood tests, they can get their kidneys, liver, they can get like a full well woman exam, make sure their pap smear is up to date, um, make sure that they don't have any pre-diabetes um, or any like underlying medical conditions they may not know of. So we recommend to have a preconception or well woman exam and be up to date mm-hmm. with your va- any like vaccines you need, etc. So to, that's number one, and then having, um, being in good health and good nutrition. Taking your starting your prenatal vitamins at least three months before, um, maybe even starting an exercise regimen if you can. If not, mm. just at least walking. Um, but getting everything really healthy, it also improves your chances of of becoming pregnant easier when you're ready. Right. Um, so I think just. For anyone, whether they're consider themselves healthy and low risk, they can benefit from a pre-pregnancy consultation. There's even genetic carrier testing you can do before you become pregnant, instead of having to do it when you become pregnant and you're surprised that you and your partner may carry a genetic condition that you share. And just getting all of as much as pre as, as much as things you can get done beforehand is probably the best. Um, a way to optimize your pregnancy and your pregnancy outcome.
0: Okay, awesome. Um, I know I put stillbirth as as the next category, but um, I was thinking we could do that towards the end and cover other pregnancy complications. Sure. Or do you feel like really passionately about it?
1: So I our clinic is like a certified one of the main main things we we work on is stillbirth.
0: Okay, awesome. Um, well, yeah. Then let's, and some let's of your other
1: it. people that you interview may not. Right, right, right. Have that expertise, so it's okay. good for you, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. I know Alyssa mentioned that that's your, yeah, definitely domain. Um, Okay, cool. Well—
1: Just fill birth in all kinds of pregnancies, like recurrent miscarriages or someone's right. baby died, like, mm. soon after birth. Okay. We deal with all—help those patients get pregnant, like, have a successful pregnancy.
0: Right. Okay. So I know that you're involved in a clinic that helps to specialize— or I know I know that you're involved in a clinic that specializes in helping parents that have previously had miscarriages or stillbirths. Um, so I'm curious, what are the warning signs for stillbirths, um, and how would you think about best methods of prevention?
1: Yeah, thank you. Absolutely, I'm glad we're we're talking about this topic. Um, actually, our our clinic is a designated rainbow clinic, and we're the. Um, what does that mean? Yeah, so we're certified by an organization called Push for Pregnancy, mm. um, and we follow very stringent protocols for monitoring women with previous pregnancy losses. So mm. our center is very passionate and focused on on the prevention of stillbirth, and we do that for all patients, not just those that have had a pregnancy loss mm-hmm. um, previously. So um, it's interesting. So we're the there, there's only two Rainbow Clinics. In the country, one in one in wow. New, one in New York, and then, and then the second is ours. Oh, that's so awesome! The I New know York that. New York site was first. The um, concept started in in the UK, so there's several in the UK, um, and the professor who started it there, and we had our own, um, you know, childbirth center, and then the the we got introduced to the push organization and the rainbow clinic and then um our center got designated as one but it's interesting Mm -hmm. because we were already doing very similar protocols as they were yeah that we had developed ourselves and then when we met them we're like oh we're doing the same exact thing um so now we're the second um of two (laughs) rainbow clinics in the united states um, stillbirth is very, very sad, not just yeah. obviously for the, for the women and the family and their family, but also even for providers, it's right. very difficult. I feel like it's difficult. more common
0: than people think. Yeah.
1: It's, people don't really like to talk about it. It's, yeah. Um, I mean, overall it's rare, but, um, it's definitely more common than people think. And a lot of, um, you know, you also like warning signs. A lot of the prenatal care that you get is focused on the prevention of stillbirth without right. you really knowing it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they like check for certain things at every visit, and part of that is to prevent stillbirth. Um so yeah, we feel we, we help women um with any kind of they could have like recurrent miscarriages or stillbirths um um or even um if they lost the baby early after birth mm-hmm. um and so and honestly the protocols that we developed we now use it on our even our routine pregnancies um because every pregnancy is at risk and we right. don't believe that you should wait to have a stillbirth mm to get the care that a patient with a previous stillbirth would get. Right. Um, So, I mean, you can come and join our center and and be our patient. I would deliver you, and you could be a complete normal pregnancy, but we try to institute a lot of the monitoring that we do, even in a normal pregnancy. Mm -hmm. If you want to... it's Usually, that's why patients will come to us, even if they're healthy and they just want the extra monitoring. Um, However... Um, we also work with patients who don't want intervention Yeah, and I work with, with a lot of midwives that do home births and we back them up and on So mm. we cover the, you know, we're open and we cover the gamut of everything. But in terms of stillbirth, um, <clears throat> sometimes there could be no warning sign, which yeah. is very scary. Mm.
2: Um,
1: you know, there's a lot of stories where people were at the doctor's office like a day before and everything was fine. Yeah. Um... But some of the warning signs um, and precautions for any pregnant woman, that we want to make sure that they're monitoring the baby's movements.
0: Mm. Like kick counting?
1: Yeah. So kick counting is like, and I'm glad you brought that up. It's like, and I want all the viewers to know. um, Typically, in kick counting, they tell you to like monitor the kicks once a day. Right. Ten kicks over one to two hour period. That's like literally the minimum. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and you, what a better way, you know, what we really recommend now is, and we're trying to change, change it. So women are always alert about the baby's movements. Every baby and every mom has their own perception of what's normal movements for that fetus. Right. And so the mom knows best and they should get to know their baby's Patterns and most of them do, and some people, someone will be like, "Oh, my baby moves all day long," mm-hmm. or it particularly moves after lunch or after dinner or at night. So they really need to know the pattern of their baby's movements. Um, and I kind of leave the kit, we we teach everyone about kick counts, but it's almost like that's like the last resort. That's like the minimum yeah. minimum thing you should be aware of. Mm. Um, if for some reason some some women like say that they're working all day long, they can't focus on the movements or they yeah. don't notice it unless they do the kick counts. Um, so try to reserve it in like to do, to like specific situations like that rather than that being the standard. Right. Um, so we recommend that everyone. Gets to know their baby's pattern of movements, and if there's any changes in the movements that they seek care right away, they shouldn't mm-hmm. make any excuse that it's like too late in the pregnancy and there's no room. Yeah, um, a lot of women chalk it up to like there's less room now, yeah. And I heard that when the later I get, there's less movements, so mm-hmm. we really try to discourage those kinds of thinking, yeah. Um, and so, so I think movements is like the probably one of the number one things right um that they should be aware of other things are of course like bleeding or if they break their water mm-hmm. they have severe pain or contractions we also recommend seeking care right away you know some providers will be like if you broke your water or you're bleeding you can take a shower and then come to the hospital we don't i don't subscribe i'm like you need to go right away yeah and get care right away um and then Another thing to be aware of if you feel like your provider's brushing something off or they're not available um, um, or you voice, you know, concern and they don't seem to be concerned, but you, there's something that's not right, mm-hmm. then then you need to advocate for yourself. Or you can just go to the hospital and the nurses or physicians that are there that will be able to care for you. Right. Yeah. Um, while it's best to go to your home hospital, you can go to any hospital and they're obligated to take care of you. Um, and if there's something wrong and the movements are off, you don't even need to, like, you don't need to call your doctor and get permission. There's so many times we'll get a call. Sometimes, like, a doctor will be out of town some covering or... Yeah. Um, Sometimes I see patients in consultation so their doctor's not available or they're in surgery or something. So they'll call and be like... You know, the baby's not moving. What do I do? Like, they should not be calling us Right. to begin. They should just already have been at the hospital. by the time, you know, so we don't recommend, you don't need permissions. You can call on the way to the hospital and tell your doctor or the hospital will call and tell your doctor. But, um, you know, you should get care what right away we recommend.
0: Okay. um, I'm curious because you mentioned stillbirth is such a sad thing or can be sad for providers as well. What drew you to the field?
1: Um, I do a lot of monitoring. You when what drew me to, to taking care of patients with silver? They're just high risk. Yeah, pregnancies I guess in just, general. yeah high
0: risk pregnancies in um, general. Yeah, and just the field of uh, maternal field. Medicine.
1: Yeah, so okay, you know I love talking that. So, <laughs> um, our field of medicine I think is one of the most special and most unique. Yeah. Um, most fields in medicine are caring for diseases right um and preventing uh you know or like prolonging life or preventing death so to speak or like taking care of your your high blood pressure and your diabetes and your cholesterol and whatnot um anyway but uh, on the flip side like pregnancies and obstetrics is like you're dealing with new life Mm -hmm. and um I think you know you're it, it's a very unique and rewarding specialty and we always usually if you're doing a good job of course not everything's in the doctor's control or the patient's control but if you're doing a good job there's usually a good outcome. Yeah. And with high risk pregnancies it's a very delicate like balancing the mom and the fetus and mm-hmm. um getting them through a difficult pregnancy and then it, and then we have a baby at the end and a healthy mom mm-hmm. um rather than um you know originally i was thinking of becoming like a, a cancer surgeon mm. and yeah. on on oncology surgeons and women women's or gynecologic oncology surgeons are amazing mm-hmm. they do they're some of the best surgeons in the hospital. Um, and their surgical skills are are absolutely amazing but after the surgery a lot of the times the patients would get sick um and then or, they're ke- or they'll be like in chemotherapy and i was like okay you're doing all this amazing surgery but then unfortunately eventually it's not a good outcome yeah um of course sometimes they prolong people's lives and and, and it's amazing but with but uh concurrently while well, i was when you do an obgyn residency you have to do ob and um and learning about like gynecology and the cancers and whatnot but it was like every time we were in the ob service we we're having like all these like nice you know like new life yeah Outcome. So anyways, I think high I mean, risk a lot of
0: Christmas cards. <laughs> yeah. Like we
1: have a whole we have a whole wall in our office filled with cards. Um, and so I I being a cancer surgeon, you're dealing with high, you know, kind of critical cases. And, yeah. And so high risk pregnancies is, is very similar in that you're dealing with these very critical situations. Mm-hmm. But at the end there's it's like the opposites for a new life. Right. Um, So that's That's what, you know, drew me into, and I also had an interest and passion I learned about in utero fetal surgery, Mm. and it's like very cutting edge, and you know, you can operate on a fetus, Mm -hmm. and I thought that was amazing, and we also specialize, it's maternal and fetal medicine, so we specialize in ultrasound, right? and being able to do an advanced fetal ultrasound that we do, that high-risk pregnancy specialists do, um it's it's it, you know it takes a lot of hand skills it's kind of like an operation and it's in its own way and maternal fetal medicine surgeons also do like i said you know they do deliveries and they do um, uh, the fetal surgery we do um, um, complicated c-sections i can tell you so many stories like type and we do also like cerclage procedures where the cervix opens like i'd love to tell you about what i was why i was awake all night
0: <laughs> yeah i mean you can yeah you
1: can. i mean so we take so uh, our field is amazing so <laughs> we, do, we do we do we do so many things so like last night i got a call it was around like eight o'clock One of my colleagues um the, her his patient just went to the office for a routine mm-hmm. visit, and she said something feels weird. She's having like some kind of vaginal pain, or just something that didn't feel right to her. So he she's checked. Pregnant. She's pregnant. Yeah, sorry. She's like, she's about like twenty one weeks pregnant, mm. and so he checks, and her cervix is dilated, mm. and the bag is like partially coming out. Mm. So he calls me. He's like, oh my god, she's about to lose the pregnancy. Um, and she just felt something funny but she really wasn't in pain or in labor no bleeding no no signs and if you had just brushed it off it would have been missed right so she had something called cervical insufficiency where your cervix just opens up
0: hmm what causes without it without
1: being in labor we really don't know okay it could be it could be some kind of genetic factors or some kind of right. like. A, was she deemed
0: high risk before? We no oh
1: okay I mean no for LA she <laughs> Poor. So so this is a very precious pregnancy. She's had three miscarriages and then mm. she finally had IVF
2: mm.
1: and now she's 21 weeks. Right. Goes to her routine visit thinking everything's fine and her cervix died and she's about to lose the pregnancy. Um. So he called me and I said, okay, send her to the hospital and let's make sure sh- she's stable and we can give her the option of doing what's called a cerclage surgery where we literally sew the cervix Hmm. um and put a stitch in it and close it up
0: and then she would have to have a c-section
1: down the road no we remove so first we wanted her to make it through (laughs) this procedure but yeah we literally i mean like the pregnancy is coming out and we're closing the cervix with this with a stitch so okay we had to add her on to this to the OR schedule now it's like she gets to the hospital like at 9, 10 at night there's like traumas and there's brain surgeries going on Um, there was like an emergency in the ICU so finally it was our turn to go to the operating room like it's a very delicate surgery I mean you have two people's lives in your hands Mm -hmm. and um, there's we had to do what a procedure called an amniocentesis yeah where we took out water or the amniotic fluid out of the sac and we send that for genetic and infection t- testing, but also just to reduce the pressure on the sac. Mm. So less of it's popping out right. of the cervix. And then um, we kind of have to turn her up, turn her a little bit partially upside down and then push the bag of water back in. Oh, wow. And while we're doing that, put stitches in the cervix. Mm. And if you're, you're, it's a very delicate if you, first of all, the amniocentesis itself is a complicated, not complicated, but a high-risk procedure that people are like freaking out about. So this one had to have, it's like two in the morning, she has to have all these procedures all of a sudden done. Um, So we did our amniocentesis, we pushed the bag of water back in and very carefully put in the cerclage stitch and closed the cervix. And you have to be really careful not to break the bag of water, it's right Mm Like right there, sitting there. So, fa- so our fingers crossed. So the surgery went well. We That's weren't awesome. done until like 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> really slow and careful. Yeah. And fingers crossed um, that the pregnancy stays mm. in. And she's at risk for preterm, premature delivery the rest of the pregnancy. And she has to be very carefully monitored. Fortunately, it, these... Sir Claudius have always worked for me. I haven't had any pregnancy losses. Um, but sometimes it's not up to... it's not, No matter how well you do the surgery... Right. She has a risk of losing her pre- pregnancy. So it's still very delicate moving forward. Um, but that's just an example of... Um, you know, our pregnancy is very... Anything can happen anytime. Yeah. You know? So for me you know you asked like if she was high risk to be. for me like those are all my patients have all these like r- recurrent miscarriages yeah. and IVF and they're older but yeah she's high risk and this is a very precious pregnancy so hopefully we um, we were able to save
0: yeah that's awesome her, her
1: pregnancy and she continues so that's just an example of something ran- I wasn't even planning to do that I was planning <laughs> to go home early and sleep so I can come to the podcast today <laughs> Um, okay. yeah, so of, <laughs> yeah. um. Yeah.
2: So we do all kinds of.
1: Yeah. Um. Yes. We do all kinds of things. We do high risk pregnancy sessions Do um, complicated C sections. Yeah. Like I did an like an upside down C section instead of it being down here. A uh, couple weeks our patient has like a big tumor, so her mm-hmm. baby's. Oh, wow. Like up here, so her incisions like basically under her. You know, the, like above her belly button, so it's like yeah. an upside down C-section. Mm. There's something called placenta accreta.
0: Yeah, didn't get had not that.
1: Yeah, she had some some spectrum of it, and and luckily she was okay. But sometimes you have to have a hysterectomy, and there's a lot of bleeding involved, and mm-hmm. so um high. A lot of some high risk pregnancy special, specialists specialize in that kind of surgery. We talked about the fetal surgery. We take care of women with. Cancer and pregnancy, and sometimes they have to get chemotherapy while they're pregnant. Mm. Um, you know, not so long about a patient with, like, leukemia and pregnancy, and we have to give her chemotherapy while she's pregnant, but then keep her pregnant as long as possible. Yeah. Where it's not life-threatening to her, but the baby's not born premature. We deal with women with, like, heart disease and pregnancy. Mm. Um, of course, diabetes and high blood pressure. Um um, previous stillbirths so we talk about, previous um, um, complications in pregnancy. I mean, the list goes on. Right. And then and we're not even touching on all, like, the fetal abnormalities that you can have, whether it's, like, brain, yeah. heart, different organs. And we talked a little bit about the ultrasound. So, um, anyways, your question was why did I go into the field? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think um, that's a good explanation. But, yeah, I mean, it's, it's um, you know, you're helping – bring life into the world we're not solely responsible i believe in like some kind of higher power god and and we're doing like all i think all doctors but we're doing literally like god's i mean like the Mm -hmm. surgery last night is yeah literally she would have lost a pregnancy we've been in 24 to 48 hours from now Mm -hmm. and um we i feel like we're whatever this higher being is or 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 whatnot where we work very closely with them and kind of like our yeah. messengers That's awesome. um and so um it's a very special field there's a lot of special things we do and um it's so it's very rewarding and very unique um, I could talk about it forever, but we'll run out of time if I keep going. <laughs>
0: um, Yeah, well, just thinking about uh, stillbirth in general, I was looking at like pregnant parents most frequently asked questions related to stillbirth. And one of them is, what week is stillbirth most common and what is the most common cause of stillbirth?
1: Okay, so... The most there's there's like kind of three types of stillbirth as you can say like early stillbirth, which is like first of all, the first definition of stillbirth like varies depending mm-hmm. on who you ask, but generally it's a pregnancy loss after twenty weeks,
0: okay, and prior um, to that, you call it a miscarriage,
1: yeah technically yeah, yeah, um and then so there's like early stillbirths that are like from like twenty to twenty six weeks, and then um. Um, like then the twenty-seven to thirty-six weeks stillbirths, and then the late late stillbirths, which are like thirty-six weeks and half. Everyone has different cutoffs, but um that's like kind of roughly what people use. Um the most unfortunately the most common cause of stillbirth we don't know or is unexplained. Mm. someone's like mm. anywhere from twenty-five to sixty percent of stillbirths are unexplained. Wow. Um but we and how
0: common is stillbirth?
1: Um, about, it can be as high as, like, five out of a thousand or mm-hmm. six out of a thousand. Um, but
0: miscarriage is, like, one in four.
1: Yeah, like, even even maybe one in three, yeah. yeah. A lot of miscarriages people don't talk about, too, right. by the way. Or, they just, or sometimes you can have a, a miscarriage so early you think you're just, like, having your period late. So it's probably yeah. way more common than we think. Yeah, I mean, stillbirth is not as common, um as miscarriage of both are are can be equally devastating to the mm. to the to the mom and to the family and um so the most common cause is unexplained and then we kind of divide it up into after that like issues with the mom uh, the placenta and umbilical cord or the fetal issues mm. so with the mom if they have an underlying medical condition like diabetes or high blood pressure Um, especially if they're uncontrolled, um, if they have some kind of, um, any kind of disease, like, like we said, diabetes, high blood pressure, subs, like if they're using drugs, um, if they have like underlying, like a kidney disorder, any kind of medical condition you can think of can increase your risk of stillbirth. Um, then there can be placenta issues. There can be problems with blood flow in the placenta. Hmm. Um. Um, and issues with the umbilical cord, um, that we call it, cord accidents. Um, there can be issues with like the placenta separating or placenta abruption. Mm. Um infections are another common cause. Um, and then um problems with the baby, whether it's like a birth defect, especially like heart defects sometimes or genetic abnormalities. Right. Um, and then there's like trauma if you get in a car accident or something like that. Um so those are some of the more typical causes and but a lot of them are unexplained. Mm. And there um could have been something wrong with the pl- placenta probably in a lot of those cases. Um and for you know, some reason the baby didn't get enough oxygen or mm-hmm the the you know blood circulation was cut off to the baby
0: right yeah my brother was actually had the umbilical cord wrapped around his neck and so um yeah there it was it was kind of crazy because we he was about to be born with cerebral palsy anyway because of that but then they were able to fix the issue in time but then he ended up getting near drowning accident um and then developing cerebral palsy yeah. that way a year later so um yeah, and that's that's kind of why I founded the company. So yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with the with the issues.
1: Wow. Yeah. Sorry to hear. It's just so crazy. That's what I'm saying. Like you just never know. Yeah. And, and especially first time moms don't know. Right. That all. I think once you're pregnant, you kind of realize like, oh wow, pregnancy can yeah. be really can be something very high risk and dangerous.
0: Right. So is there a typical time frame that stillbirth normally happens, like week wise?
1: Oh yeah. I mean a lot. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, you asked that earlier. So. um after the the highest risk period would probably be like after 36 weeks mm-hmm. but if you have an underlying medical condition or high risk pregnancy i would say after 32 weeks
0: okay interesting um and generally what is the best treatment for stillbirth um after it happens
1: oh after it happens yeah so
0: or before too
1: i mean before we talked about like okay so both yeah, yeah to answer your question <laughs> kind of goes into both um so, there's obviously not, like, a, literally a treatment once a stillbirth happens, but mm-hmm. you're asking, like, how to kind of prevent it. Yeah. Um. And so, that's why now I do, we do the extra monitoring on all of our patients. But mm-hmm. basically, first of all, we we talk about from pre-pregnancy, you want to optimize your your medical health. And then when you become yeah. pregnant, you want to have, if especially if you've had a previous stillbirth, you need to have, and depending on the cause, you want to have closer monitoring. So... The first thing is to try to find out find the cause. Um there's certain you want you can do certain blood tests to check for like blood clotting disorders you may yeah. have or underlying medical conditions that you may not have known you had. Um you can have your placenta checked. Um and um, a lot of hospitals have placenta pathologists but some don't, so you can send your placenta to a a placenta specialist, and there's one that we work with um, who's well-known in the area at uh, Yale, Dr. Kleinman. So a lot of people in the country send their placenta to him. Oh, wow. And that's, that's like his expertise is, wow. is looking at placentas and trying to figure out the cause, which helps a lot of women kind of get an understanding of what happened, because otherwise they would be um, considered unexplained. Right stillbirth um so finding a cause and then having close monitoring having a very good relationship with your doctor being able to like advocate for yourself um monitoring it depends who you ask some people say just means you should have three ultrasounds or four ultrasounds in your pregnancy which in some communities that might just be standard or you should get something called non like non-stress test or antenatal testing Mm -hmm. Starting around like 32 to 34 weeks, or you can go more extreme, which is what our like the rainbow clinics do. And I mean, in the first trimester, we do weekly monitoring and we're checking for all the kind of, if, especially if we haven't seen them before they got pregnant, then we're checking for all kinds of underlying medical disorders, making sure to help prevent them from having a miscarriage in that stage. And then in the second trimester, we see them at least every couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, typically you would see your doctor just once a month. Um, and then in the third trimester, we see them twice a week. And the very end, where it gets very high-risk we see them three times a week. Mm. And usually they get delivered early, at least a week before their due date. And depending on the circumstances, their pre- their prior pregnancy sometimes as much as, like, two or three weeks before their due date. Right. Because that last part is the—like mo- like we said earlier— is very high risk. So a lot of people think they're, like, they're at the end or they have, like, diabetes and they're like, oh, we're at the end and now I can, like, eat whatever I want because I'm delivering in two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But honestly, it's like that last few weeks are the most critical. The placenta is getting older. Mm. The baby's only alive because of the placenta. Mm-hmm. And it's getting oxygen and, and nutrients through the placenta. And so things can—the placenta gets old at the end. Mm. Um, and— Things can go wrong. At the, you can get high blood pressure, preeclampsia at the end. Right. Um, and you can get placental abruptions or separations of the placenta at the end. Mm-hmm. So that last month is very important. And if you were a diabetic, even if you weren't controlling your sugars well, you really want to control them and watch your blood pressures and those the kick counts and the movements that mm-hmm. we were talking about. All of that at the very end is very important.
0: Okay. Interesting. Yeah, I I was reading that one of the most common questions that pregnant parents ask is, which trimester is the fetus at greatest risk? Um, So I know you mentioned like the last two weeks are really important, but is there a particular time where risk is highest?
1: Yeah, so after, I would say after 36 weeks, um, and then if you have an underlying issue like high blood pressure, diabetes, I would say after thirty-two weeks. Okay. The best time, the in the first trimester, there's a miscarriage risk, and the baby is being formed, so there's risks involved in the first trimester. The safest trimester. Another way to answer your question is like the safest trimester is the second trimester, mm. from like fourteen to like twenty-seven, twenty-eight weeks is probably okay. the safest time.
0: Okay. Interesting. Um, so yeah, I know we touched a bit on complications and high blood pressure is definitely one really large pregnancy complication. Um, so if you already have high blood pressure and then you, um, get pregnant, then does high blood pressure impact the baby and what kind of precautions should you take in those cases?
1: Yeah. So high blood pressure preclampsia is not just dangerous for the mom. It can be dangerous for the, for the fetus too. Yeah. The blood pressures get too high. You can have placental abruption. Where the placenta separates. And like we said, the baby's only alive because of the placenta. So your blood mm-hmm. pressures get really high. Um, also, typically in preeclampsia, it's caused by an abnormal placenta and abnormal blood vessels in the placenta mm. um, that end up as a result. You have an abnormal placenta, and it's not fully understood, but the placenta's blood vessels are abnormal. And so they don't, there can be some like, um, uh, there are abnormal changes and the placenta gives off. I'm just trying to make it as simple as possible, but some factors, abnormal factors that go into your circulation and cause you to, hmm. your blood vessel, the mom's blood vessels to get tight and have high blood pressure. But um, underlying preeclampsia is an abnormal placenta. So the baby's right. at, baby is definitely at risk. There can be issues, like we said, besides placenta abruption, but there's also like a risk for fetal growth restriction or the baby isn't, growing well because the placenta isn't functioning well
0: mm, restricted blood flow so mm-hmm. then their growth is restricted
1: yes yeah, so they're growth restricted or there's a placenta abruption risk um and um so and to the mom there's like a, a lot of risks with yeah. high blood pressure um and preeclampsia
0: okay interesting does being pregnant make your blood pressure higher that's another misconception yeah
1: no it's a mis. actually your blood pressure gets lower
2: Okay. Um,
1: your Why? blood vessels your blood vessels generally dilate to accommodate mm. more blood in your you have a lot more blood in your body, and so your blood vessels are a little bit more um in your veins and your blood vessels and your circulation is a little bit more expands or, di- yeah. or like dilated so to to be able to handle the volume again, just trying to make it a simple simplest way yeah. to understand it. And so actually, um through a big portion of like the second and even like early third trimester, so people's blood pressure actually goes down.
2: Mm.
0: That's interesting because I've I've read that you're pumping up to forty percent more blood volume through your body.
1: Yeah, yeah, even maybe more, forty to like sixty yeah. percent. But your but your your veins and your circulation is a lot more dilated, mm. expanded to to take right. it. So. Um, um your blood pressure is actually lower especially in the beginning
0: okay interesting um so a lot of
1: women yeah like with they have like pre-existing high blood pressure chronic hypertension yeah their blood pressure can be really well controlled in the beginning and then when we get closer to in the third, later in the third trimester it gets high and it becomes mm. really high risk
0: okay interesting Um, So moving back to uh, sort of stillbirth and miscarriage, I know you talked about how the most common causes for stillbirth are unknown, um, but what are the most common causes for miscarriage? So loss earlier in the pregnancy.
1: Um, Yeah. Okay, that's a great question. So, um, and I'm sure a lot of people are wondering and think about this all day long because (laughs) it can be very traumatic. Yeah. I mean, once you for some for some women, couples, and like once they see that pregnancy tests, even if they're like a week pregnant. Yeah. Or two weeks pregnant, they they get very attached. Mm-hmm. And um early miscarriages are very common and it can be very uh, kind of traumatic and hurtful. Yeah. And very sad. Um and miscarriages, as we discussed, are very, very common. Unfortunately, likewise, the most common cause for miscarriages is unexplained. Um, and then then the second most common are like, if there's an underlying genetic abnormality with the pregnancy, it doesn't mean that it's something that was inherited. we, yeah. always, we always remind the parents that it's not something that was necessarily inherited through. Uh, you know, either parent or, um, you know or through the family, or if you're doing IVF, they're like, you know, we we whether they use their own egg or donors mm-hmm. egg or donor sperm, they like genetically test it. Um but sometimes things can go wrong. I mean you're starting with a little ball of cells and forming a human. And so mm-hmm. along the way there can be um something can go wrong in the in the in the, in the genetically in the DNA and so um, usually we like to think that genetic abnormalities are, um, like the second most after, yeah. uh, after unexplained. Um, and then, and then we get into like the things that ca- that we discussed before, if there's like an underlying medical disorder or medication use or substance abuse mm. or some kind of trauma, some kind like the people have like autoimmune diseases or mm-hmm. blood clotting disorder diseases, that they don't know about, um, um, or they had, like, a thyroid issue or a diabetes issue they weren't aware of. Yeah. Um, But a lot of times we just don't know. We try to remind everyone it's not their fault. So the most important is that for people to understand it's not their fault. Yeah. Um, Because even if, like, there is a cause... First, of all, a lot of the unexplained ones that like, people start thinking like, "Oh, did I like? Was it because I exercise or like bent mm. over? Was it because I picked that thing up or is it because I got in an argument?" Yeah.
2: <laughs>
1: you know when you know people get in <laughs> stress. You're very it's a lot of newly pregnant women are stressed or very emotional. Yeah. Um. I mean that's like a whole another topic, and <laughs> they and in the and then their partner can be very stressed, too, in the beginning. Um, and so it's not uncommon that, or, like, someone's, one or, one or the other is like, moody, and they'll get yeah. in a fight. And then they'll try this, like, was it because we got in a fight? um Or was it because we had coffee or something? I don't know. They'll come up with all kinds of things to try to explain it. Right. And we try to try to remind them that like it's none of those things.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What do you typically say to parents after they've had a miscarriage or stillbirth in the past? And also does having a past miscarriage or stillbirth make it more likely that you'll have one in the future?
1: Um, anytime you have something, it makes it more likely to have in the future. But mm-hmm. most most women go on to have a normal pregnancy. And so as soon as I mean like first of all it's very hard to break the news. Yeah. And that took, like, years to figure out how to tell someone. Yeah. Um. But so once we, like, break the news to them, then I quickly go into... Because I know that they're, like, starting to think of all these things they did. Yeah. That, that caused it. Or they start blaming each other. Or they start thinking of, like, genetic things. And I so we, we like, right away start and i'm sure they want to be alone but they also need to be reminded and so we usually right away if they give us the opportunity try to re- like explain that it's very common what the possible causes are um and that we discuss and then we remind them that it's not any of the things that's going probably going to their mind right now as right. we're like talking um and then and then they start asking oh so it wasn't because i actually you know those They've already like within seconds started thinking of these things. So I try mm-hmm. to preempt or like, preempt it right away. Yeah. Um, so we try to give them a lot of reassurance and explain to them that it's not their fault. And talk about the different possible causes, even the genetic ones. We said they're not, not, the majority of the time are not at all inherited. And so they mm-hmm. we try to remind them that most women will go on to have a normal pregnancy. But unfortunately, like no matter what you tell them, it's a very sad moment.
0: Right.
1: Um, and the excitement especially for uh for anyone. Not I was gonna say for the first time, but for anyone, like that excitement they get very attached mm-hmm. to her pregnancy very quickly and so yeah. it's a huge like letdown. Even right. though they know and a lot of women know that they miscarriages are common. and It's yeah still, it's still very difficult.
0: Yeah. Um, do you have any like patient stories that you typically point to that? Are really optimistic or help inspire parents that have many miscarriages? I
1: mean, yeah, we just try to remind. Like, literally, we see, I have to bad news, like, every day. Mm-hmm. And I just try to explain to them, like, we, this morning we told someone they had a miscarriage. You know, we try to just tell them it's very yeah. common. It's especially hard for mm-hmm. the ones that have, like, mm-hmm. recurrent miscarriages. But, you know, not all of them, but a lot of them end up eventually having a baby and so we we try to explain to them how common it is and how many times we saw that day already or that week
0: right yeah like i know that chrissy Teigen is kind of a controversial figure but i feel like her family story is so interesting in that like even they had like the concurrent surrogacy and all these things um so yeah do you happen to know why her stillbirth happened
1: so if you're talking the one that was like in the media yeah and she talked about it a lot mm-hmm. um i actually was one of her physicians for the, for that pregnancy um. and she talks about it but i mean basically without getting into i don't know i don't remember what she said or didn't say but um she ended up explaining actually that she had you know recently with all the, there's all these like new laws in different states about like pregnancy terminations mm-hmm. and stuff um technically she explained that she had to terminate her pregnancy because she was having a lot of bleeding that was almost kind of right. becoming life threatening uh threatening for her and so um but that it's all under the category of like pregnancy loss and so you know usually typically bleeding is caused by the placenta and the and the mm-hmm. placenta having like a separation or or bleeding and and i mean there is just so much you can bleed before it becomes unsafe right
0: awesome well um yeah i wanted to also chat about high risk ob care like i know the field of high risk ob care and being in mfm um is uh, actually pretty like frequently searched term. Um, just because I think like you said, a lot of parents I think spend a lot of time thinking about how they can reduce them the chances of being high risk. Um, so is being a high risk OB the same as being an MFM? And when should parents seek the support of either?
1: Yeah, so um it's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> um originally our field or specialty was called perinatology. Mm-hmm. Um or, yeah perinatologist. so some older folks they'll call us perinatologists um, and then it's also known as maternal and fetal medicine and that's what it's like term now and that's how we're like board certified is maternal and fetal medicine sessions that's what our training is called Um, and then we're also called high risk pregnancy specialists mm. so um, we so go by all one three and the same. <clears throat> yeah they're all the same Perinatology, maternal fetal medicine or MFM, and high risk pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, those are all the same. Um, <clears throat> you, there, there are not that many high risk pregnancy specialists in the country. Um, there is only about we think from our based on our like board certification or society, maybe about like two thousand.
2: Mm.
1: Or maybe even less practicing actively in the country.
0: Do you think that's enough?
1: Um, so each, like, high risk, I don't think it's enough, no. And each high risk pregnancy doctor serves, um, you know, a large community or a large community mm-hmm. of obstetricians. So it depends on what pregnancy models, model, what model is in your community. We talked mm. about how in some communities there's a high risk pregnancy doctor just does consultations and works with an obstetrician so mm-hmm. you so let's put it in terms of the of the patient because that's you know our viewer so like so you're pregnant and you have your ob and that's who's going to see you and do your blood tests and answer your questions and deliver you and then it, they will most of the time, again, depending on where you are, if there an a high risk pregnancy specialist available or your obstetrician agrees to work with one, which they should, they'll send you for your like ultrasound, mm-hmm. and typically you'll get anywhere from as little as like three ultrasounds during the pregnancy, two or three pregnant ultrasounds with your high risk pregnancy doctor. Mm-hmm. And then that way, you've established a relationship with them in case you become high risk. Then they've done your ultrasound and they'll intervene and help your obstetrician.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, then there are um, high risk pregnancy specialists who do total OB and MFM care, where we do, you take care of the OB part and the high risk part. And you take care of both, you know, normal pregnancies and abnormal pregnancies because any of the normal pregnancies can become high risk. And you definitely take care of obviously the high risk pregnancies. So, an obstetrician in conjunct in the first model, an obstetrician in conjunction with a high risk pregnancy doctor, um, many of them can take care of a high risk pregnancy and and do a delivery. Um, but they will be leaning on the high risk pregnancy specialist to tell them what to do or help with the monitoring and when to deliver and, um, you know, consult with them. So your high-risk obstetrician in that situation may be like kind of really managing your whole pregnancy, but then your OB does your delivery mm. because that's who your primary doctor was to begin with, even though you became high-risk. So that's like one model. The second one was where... The high risk doctor does everything, whether you're normal to begin with or high risk, and the high risk doctor does all your prenatal care, all your ultrasounds, and your delivery. Mm. Um, And so there can be either of those two situations. And so some of the women who are high, they know they're high risk. They may seek, if there's a a high risk OB doctor, does deliveries to just be with them the whole time. Um, and that's probably ideal for those very high risk pa- patients, but that's not always available. In some cities, you will just have like your high-risk doctors never do deliveries, so they'll just right. be consult con- consult only. So or you might then travel to like a university based kind of situation where those high-risk doctors work with they do deliveries or they work with their OBs in the, in the hospital or university. And then there's also some rural communities where there is no high risk mm-hmm. doctor anywhere, right? In the city or even part of the state or region, yeah. and so now a lot of high risk doctors are doing are available by telemedicine. Mm. Um, yeah, I've been
0: reading more and more about maternal deserts increasing in the U.S.
1: Yeah, so like there's a there's a whole there's there are several now. Um, companies or organizations or colleagues they just do they do telemedicine and Mm -hmm. they 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 do read the ultrasounds remotely and they'll also with like a camera at the bedside see patients in a hospital in a different state Mm. because there's just not any high-risk doctor around physically there um and there never was and those some of those hospitals like the ob's were for years just on their own and now so they have the um, the high-risk doctors present by telemedicine um with the increasing age or whether it's obesity or whatever population changes we're seeing more and more high-risk pregnancies Mm. so high-risk pregnancies are increasing increasing yeah and and the role of the high risk doctor is is even is ever increasing. Mm, interesting. Um, we believe, in, in terms of the ultrasound, um, like so, if you're just a normal pregnancy, you have to get at least like two or three ultrasounds hmm. with the during the pregnancy. We did the bare minimum. We, our society for high risk doctors and society for maternal fetal medicine, we really push and recommend that your ultrasound, your detailed ultrasounds are done by a maternal-fetal medicine specialist. Mm. Some OBs do their own ultrasound, or they're skilled in it, or they have like um, sonographers who are who are certified in it, or there's just not a high-risk doctor available. But to the extent if they are available, you should get your ultrasound with a high-risk pregnancy specialist at minimum, and have that care kind of established with them. Yeah, um, <clears throat> and then. Um, personally, I do a little bit of both. Um, we do the um, you know consult only um, care for as a perinatologist, but I also do a total OB and high risk pregnancies care and do my own deliveries. Mm. So I do both. It's kind of split.
0: Cool. I've I've chatted with parents who talk. Yeah, oh, I just
1: wanted to say, I, and some people think it's, like, weird. Why would you do the— deli- a lot of people become high-risk pregnant because they don't want to even do the— deli- They just want to be, like, consultated. But when you take care of, like— There was a time where I'm just doing consult only, and it's mm-hmm. not as— unf- Like, the high-risk doctor, like, takes care of all these, like, complicated things, and they're not even at the birth, <laughs> yeah. which is, like, really sad. <laughs> so Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so I enjoyed, like, doing the deliveries. Yeah. And so I started doing— doing, like taking on the whole patient for myself. But um, anyway, so I kind of split, but worked with my OB colleagues for many years. So anyways, the long, I think, you know, yes, OBs can take care of some high-risk pregnancies Mm -hmm. usually in conjunction with high-risk pregnancy specials.
0: Yeah, I've chatted with parents who um, talked about... Like, I feel like a lot of parents are just generally concerned about decreasing intervention during birth. Um, So especially if they're high-risk pregnancy or anything like that... yeah, I feel like people are just worried about interventions leading to further complications. Um, so if you're currently pregnant, what kind of methods should you take to reduce intervention? Um and also, what are your thoughts in general on midwifery versus OB assisted deliveries when it comes to interventions?
1: Yeah, um that's like a it's a big topic <laughs>
0: yeah
1: <laughs> um I personally so I mean, it's it's really we believe okay. So, there's something like shared patient decision making. And mm. so, if a patient doesn't want... Um, I don't even want... like to say that it's not that they don't want intervention. I think that some patients... I work with a lot of midwives. Yeah. And I don't think we should label them... Not that we were, like, talking about it. Even, like... I mean, like, before I walked in here, I would probably label them the same way. Like, they want least intervention? Mm. Um, but... It's interesting after, like, all we've talked about and then when you asked me that. I'm just thinking, like, we shouldn't... Those patients don't need to be, like, labeled. Right. As... And I didn't plan... I didn't think of this before. But I'm <laughs> yeah. <just>
0: thinking, <laughs> no, that's fair. That's a fair like, point.
1: Like, it's not that they don't want intervention or they're bad mm-hmm. patients or they're crazy. Yeah. Like, you'll hear about, like, why would they want ho why would they want to deliver at home or why would they like not want to have intervention. I mean, that's their personal decision. And yeah. sometimes they've had like medical trauma. Right. Um Or they had a bad experience in the hospital and they're traumatized and so they, need, they want to deliver at birth or they had like a family member pass away in the hospital and they want to deliver. At, I mean, it could be a million reasons or they just want to be comfortable at home or they believe... Pregnancy is, you know, one thing, it's not a, you know, they don't believe in pregnancy as, as being a disease. They don't even call their patients patients, they call them their clients. Yeah. So, you know, they call their, like, a lot of midwives they call their patients their client, And I asked them, like, when I first saw like, why are you, like, what are you, what is, what is this about, client? They're like, <laughs> they're like, Steve, pregnancy is not a disease. Like, yeah. <laughs> why are you calling them a patient? Uh
0: uh-huh.
1: It's not like they have a medical disease, they're pregnant. And so some people, some people believe want a natural, kind of as natural as as possible, um, pregnancy, and to have the least medical intervention, just because they want to be natural, mm-hmm. or, or they've had medical trauma, or they just, um, like we said, they think pregnancy is not a disease. And um, actually, had a patient the other night who's, an ICU nurse. Mm-hmm. Who sees very sick patients all day long in the hospital? Yeah, that are very critical and like on the verge of dying, and she's electing to do a home birth with a midwife. And so, like, I'm like, okay, this is very interesting. You're an ICU nurse, but you want to do a home birth. Like, can you explain to me? And my and I had, but she actually ended up ex- telling me herself because she was like talking about her job and what mm-hmm. she does. And she's like, oh, you're probably like wondering why I'm like in this like ice nurse, but I'm delivering at home. It's like such a stark difference. And she just said, you know what? I'm in the hospital all day long (laughs) and seeing people dying. I want to like have my baby in peace at home. I don't want to be in the hospital where I work having my baby.
0: Yeah. No, I've actually thought about that myself because my brother growing up, like I mentioned, he had cerebral palsy. So we were always kind of in and out of the hospital because his was pretty uh, severe. And then, um, yeah, even like one of my old boyfriends had a pretty severe ulcerative colitis. So I was like constantly in the hospital then. And being in the hospital environments, Me anxiety. Like, my dad's an anesthesiologist, so he used to take me when I was younger with him to work sometimes. Um, and I would just like sit in the waiting room basically while he was checking in on clients or on patients. (laughs) And, um, And it always gave me anxiety to be there. So, when my when this doula I was once speaking with was talking about how like birth should basically be a really serene environment so that it can move really smoothly. I was like, I don't know how I can make it a serene environment for myself if I'm in a hospital and being in hospital settings give me anxiety.
1: Right. I mean like and if especially if you're like trying to be at a good hospital and they're like it's like it's busy. Yeah. Um and it's loud and um there's like IVs and it's like very medical, you know? So Mm -hmm. so I mean, it's just really up to the patient because some of them want to have least intervention and want to have like a more natural kind of experience and they don't believe pregnancy is a disease. And then there's some patients who are, uh, you know, nervous about every little thing and want to come to the doctor yeah. three times a week and they, want,
2: <laughs>
1: they don't even want to labor. They just want a C-section. I mean, yeah. So we have like the whole range. And so I work with a lot of... Midwives in the beginning, a lot of doctors have an issue with midwives or doulas, and they had to, you know, I had to really work with them closely, and started to gain their trust. Mm. Um, And I saw that they're very knowledgeable; they know what they're doing. um, And especially if they 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 be depending on their experience level, some of them are, are very very good. Yeah, and they they know like when it's time when someone risks out and they shouldn't deliver them at home. They Mm -hmm. know when to move to the hospital. Um, And so it took a little bit of... I mean, I just remember like my first time working with a midwife. I was like, we were not... It was not working. (laughs) And then... But we stuck together and like... Mm -hmm. She literally like explained to me what they do and she trained me and I started getting used to the words they use. And at first I thought they were crazy. And then I like... (laughs) Over time, I'm, like, got very used to working with them and completely now understand their model of yeah. care and understand why... We understand why those patients want, for whatever their reason is, they all have a reason. Yeah. They want midwife free care um, and, or a home birth. And there are some midwives... There's a lot of midwives that deliver at the hospital, too. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so there's midwives that, like, some... Hospitals like Kaiser System, for example, like all their low risk deliveries are done by midwives.
0: Yeah, and they do it in the hospital. Yeah, they, they do, the do it midwife. in the
1: hospital. Yeah. Then there's like, um, I worked for a short period of time at UC San Francisco, which is a, a, a very like a, one of the top hospitals yeah. in, the, in the world, and especially for high risk pregnancies. Mm-hmm. And their midwives there deliver the high risk. Like if they're getting a vaginal delivery, the midwives deliver them, and they're high risk. Yeah, I mean they could have been in the hospital for for months, and i have heart disease, and and the midwife is delivering them. And then if they right. need a C section, then the doctor who's like on call will come to, this, to the do the C section if they happen to need one. But otherwise, the midwife is doing the delivery. So there's all kinds of midwives and. And if you have a good one who's well-experienced, they know who's, you know, generally they know who what's safe to deliver at home and not.
2: Yeah.
1: And then I, um, because I'm a high-risk pregnancy specialist and I worked for a little bit of time as um, what's called a laborist, we just deliver like random people who come in. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm able to back up a lot of, uh midwives if they want to transfer care so if something happens and the patient risks out of delivering at home or they might need a C-section because the baby's breech yeah and they've tried to turn it and they've tried a million things and it won't turn then I'll do the C-section so a very now close relationship and understanding with the midwives which is not com- not common for OBs there's always this like unfortunately they don't always get along. Yeah. Um. Or they have like complete opposite perspectives of each other. Right. Um. But because I was at UCSF, because even uh, um at my current hospitals here in LA, they have midwives. Because mm-hmm. in my private practice, we worked. The midwives kind of trained me and explained to me what they do. I'm very now open to to it all, and so we let the patients awesome. decide, and if they need. Um, i don't do home births i don't even know how midwives like at the hospital i have so much help <laughs> there's like a million nurses and sometimes we have residents and, yeah <laughs> and like midwives do it like they have like they're either alone or like with an assistant i, I i've i've promised that they've and I, i've been wanting to go to one of their home births and see it because i don't know how they do everything that we do with all the help in the hospital they just do it all alone and, yeah. At home so actually I'm very impressed by a midwife. <laughs> in that regard. Yeah. Um and so yeah, we love working with them and I love backing them up and um and it's basically we let the patients decide and it's what's called now we call it shared patient decision making.
0: Okay. Awesome. Um cool. Well, thinking more about high risk OB care, um who is the most at risk for problems during pregnancy?
1: Um, everyone,
2: but <laughs>
1: um, no, I mean, obviously, like if you like, if you if you start out with an underlying medical condition, yeah, um, or that's not well. I mean, you can still have that's not well controlled. I'll say because you can have an uh, pre-existing hypertension, or diabetes, but if you control it well before you become pregnant, you can have a great right. Uh, It would be high risk, but you can have a great pregnancy. So I think who is at highest risk is like someone who's not taking care of their health or their uncontrolled um, underlying condition or if they develop a complication during pregnancy. Um, And then, you know, as much as I want to deny it because we're here in LA, like older age, I guess, like especially if you're over like 40 or 45, it gets riskier and those patients definitely get an extensive like workup beforehand and clearance mm. and we make sure their heart for example is functioning well mm. before they become pregnant um but a lot of those women do go on to do great I, like i said like we have a 52 year old yeah patient that's awesome. who's pregnant um so yeah i wouldn't even necessarily could i mean like i I want to deny it because i don't think age should be any- like because it's so common here, we're used to it, but it is one of the risk factors. But yeah, probably someone who's not healthy and right. who has uncontrolled conditions, right, the highest risk.
0: Okay, what are three signs? So- or if you're if you're currently pregnant, what are three signs that you should not ignore during pregnancy?
1: Okay, yeah, um, bleeding, um, changes in the baby's movement. Mm. And then I would say, like, if you're just not feeling something, if you just feel something's off. Okay. We always say the mother knows best, whether yeah. it's like they just feel a pain or the baby's not moving or they feel nauseous or something's just not right. We usually tell them that their instincts are probably correct.
0: Okay. Um, I have two more questions and it's around premature delivery, which we haven't touched on too much. Um, but what are the warning signs for premature labor and what are generally the main problems for premature babies?
1: Um, so like everything else in pregnancy, sometimes there are no, there could be no warning signs and suddenly you you have a preterm birth. Yeah. Um, yeah. But some, if there are going to be warning signs, you can have like contractions mm. Um, in your premature and you shouldn't be having contractions. So bleeding contractions, obviously, if you like um, break your water or you're starting to have high blood pressures, there's something off for of the baby's growth.
2: Because
1: mm-hmm. um, premature births, there can be like what we call like spontaneous premature births or you just go into labor early. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you might have those like clinical symptoms or an ultrasound, your cervix is getting, you have a short cervix Mm. and then, um, there are some medically indicated preterm births, like for high blood pressure, for example, um, or another, or a fetal condition or maternal condition necessitates us to, or the baby's not growing well and we have to deliver early, um, or a condition called like cholestasis of pregnancy, um, or oftentimes like multiple gestations. So There's like medically indicated, and then there's like the the, the spontaneous ones. Mm. Um, so for the spontaneous ones, it would just be basically those like mainly those symptoms. Okay. With the risks of prematurity, it really depends on the gestational age. As the baby gets older, obviously the risks are lower. Yeah. But some of the common um risks, like the one of the mo- like some of the more common ones are respiratory issues or breathing mm-hmm. issues, respiratory distress syndrome. Um, and so like, you know, breathing and lung issues. So a lot of premature babies get intubated, feeding problems with like feeding um, and weight gain. Um, you can have in, um, intestine disease um, or issues like blood flow to the intestines mm-hmm. or... Um, um, you can have brain bleeds. Depending on the earlier the, the the birth, the more high risk. But um, like so, bleeding in the brain, vision problems, hearing problems, disabilities, mm. and just like the further you get out, especially like after twenty eight weeks or thirty two weeks or thirty four weeks, the risks of prematurity are um are lower. And so right. preterm birth is considered before thirty seven weeks.
0: Okay. Awesome. Um, and then a quick bonus question I was thinking about is I know you chat a lot about ultrasounds, especially since you're at MFM. Um, and I read a study that uh, higher quantities of ultrasounds are correlated with being left handed. Do you know why that correlation might be? No, I
1: haven't. No, No, I have no idea, and honestly, but I'm glad you brought. The question, I guess, this topic. No, I don't. I've never heard. Of, actually, I never even heard of that.
0: Mm, okay. Um, are more is but, having more ultrasounds dangerous? But
1: yeah, I, I was gonna say, no. So our machines now are regulated. Um, you know, early on when ultrasound first came out,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, what they call like the frequency, or, like, power, like the frequency of the ultrasound were much higher, but now, um, especially if your organ, your center is accredited. The machines, when um, you have like fetal ultrasound machines, they're they're usually calibrated for fetuses, and um, and if you follow, there's like very specific settings you should have on your machine, um, and it's very low frequency. So like it's there are uses of ultrasounds that even for like certain medical conditions or like mm-hmm. tumors and things like like shrinking tumors, like the fetal ultrasounds are nowhere near near those and so there um yeah we don't know of any anything being unsafe about ultrasounds or the frequency of getting right. ultrasounds their ultrasound if it is like a high enough frequency and you put it on long enough on a tissue it could cause um like heating of the tissue but i mean it would take weeks you would yeah. just have like sit there for the ultrasound again for, like, for weeks like just on you yeah, or months in theory if that, <laughs> if that would even happen but no one sits there with an ultrasound <laughs> glue to them. So yeah. yeah, we don't think, I mean, there's no, there's nothing um, unsafe okay. that we know of.
0: Okay, cool. Um, well, that's all the questions that I have but um, do you have any sort of parting words to parents that are high risk or maybe have had losses in the past?
1: I mean, just everything we kind of talked about yeah. um, just so to to be try to be healthy before mm-hmm. you get pregnant. And if you do have a medical condition, try to get it under control before you get pregnant. You can meet your high risk pregnancy doctor ahead of time. Mm. Oftentimes sometimes I meet patients like a year or two before they become pregnant.
2: Mm. Okay.
1: And we sit down and we plan their entire pregnancy two yeah. years ahead of time and how frequently they're going to see me and how many ultrasounds they're going to get and what medications we're going to use and
2: right.
1: what delivery plan. And we have a plan already in place. So literally you can plan your pregnancy way like before you're pregnant. Yeah. Um, And so I just think like, just like optimizing your health mm-hmm. before you become pregnant advocating for yourself and if something's wrong to speak up um and um and in terms of like picking your doctor you can make sure you're a good fit um you can likewise before you become pregnant interview different doctors and different offices and styles and get to know them um and then with um you know, we talked about all the things you can do for, like, preventing stillbirth. For those mm-hmm. women who've had stillbirths or recurrent um, pregnancy losses, you would probably want to see a, a high-risk pregnancy specialist for your future pregnancies. Get the extra monitoring. Um, have someone that understands and is willing to work with you and, and listen to you. Um, and... um um, but also at the end not to get too stressed about it. I mean, at the end um <laughs> it the idea of being pregnant is to be to have a child and yeah. and that's supposed to enrich your life and be a blessing. Um and by the way, I mean I, like we did not even get I don't I'm sure you don't I don't think you talk about this but having it there's also the other side of it's also not easy mm. you know raising raising yeah. your child so do you
0: have kids
1: so yeah i have kids <laughs> <laughs> so um you know i people joke kind of like, it's always better in than out because there's a whole <laughs> like once it's out there's a whole no- a lot yeah. of other stress you have and new worries about like what they're going to what formula or what bre- mm-hmm. about breastfeeding and sleeping yeah. and schools and for the rest of your life, <laughs> really. Um, That's cool. But, yeah, so um, so even if you're high risk, just, you know, have a good doctor and, and advocate for yourself and be prepared yeah. ahead of time and, um, and try to enjoy it too if you can. Right. Because pregnancy is supposed to be also an enjoyable time.
0: Okay, awesome. Um, if people want to reach you, how can they best find you? And especially your clinic, since it's one of two Rainbow Clinics in the U.S.
1: Yeah. So um, the easiest, we're here in Los Angeles, um, and my office is in West Hollywood at the Cedar Sinai Medical Office Towers, which is just adjacent to the to the hospital. But the best way to probably reach us is through Instagram. Cool. Um, because a lot of contact information and awesome. link links like Linktree and all that stuff is there. So it's at Dr. Steve Rad. Cool. So it's very easy at Dr. Steve Rad. That's cool. probably the easiest and way to find us.
0: What's the name of your clinic?
1: Um, so it's has a center for um maternal fetal health and high risk pregnancies and um and also the Los Angeles Fetal Maternal Care Center.
0: Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much for being here today. I, I'm really grateful. And this was super informative for me too.
1: Thank you. Um, yeah. I, I love talking about what I do and <laughs> yeah. um, and thank you for having me and I can't wait to see it live.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and
1: um, thank you very much. I okay. really enjoyed it.
0: Yeah. yeah. Awesome.